Would you open your Bibles, please, to the book of Haggai, found between Zephaniah and Zechariah. And as you turn there, let me just bring you up to date on where we had gotten last week. We actually began this uh, a study of this passage last week. There are only two chapters in this entire book, uh, relatively short chapters, but chapters that became very, very important in the life of the Israelites. And in the context of what was going on here, Israel, the, the southern tribes, which I, I think most of you are very much aware that there were divisions of the people of Israel, the northern tribes, that years before had been taken captive by the Assyrians, and they were dispersed. The southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin were taken captive by Babylon, and we found that the time that they were spending in the land of Babylon, many of them were literally taken physically and moved into Babylon. They were not years of torture and real hardship, but they were part of a judgment that God was bringing because the Israelites had failed to observe the Sabbath, which was a covenant relationship, a a symbol of the covenant relationship that God had with Israel. They were to observe this seventh day, the day of rest, as a reflection of that covenant that God had made with them. Well, the time was coming in which the fulfillment of that prophecy that God had given concerning the time of their captivity being 70 years, which was the extent of time for the judgment, that was coming to a close. And the Lord raised up a secular king by the name of Cyrus. If you remember, the Babylonians had been overtaken by the the Medes and the Persians. Cyrus was the king of Media, which was north of Persia, which today would include the land of Iran and some of the places around there. And they, in a relatively peaceful uh, move, overtook the Babylonians. And and we even have a record of that, uh, that that's given to us in the, the book of Daniel, where um, we're, we're introduced to the fact that Babylon was going to give up their kingdom, and uh, on the night of the prophecy that, that occurred and the Medes and Persians took over, Cyrus, being the first king of that new empire, made a decree And the decree was to allow the people of Israel to return to their homeland and to reestablish the forms of worship that they had been accustomed to. And that was, that was relatively the, the type of reign that occurred during the, the period of the Medes and the Persians. They were very open to allowing people to worship as they chose. And this was really reflective of what they had done. There was a group of close to 50,000 from Medo-Persia, 50,000, 40, about 43,000 who were Jews and 7,000 of their servants and workers that returned to the land of Israel under this decree of Cyrus. They lived there for a period of about 16 years. And during that period of time, some things had occurred to discourage them from building what God had called them to build, which was to reestablish the temple. The temple, the previous temple that Solomon had built, had been destroyed when the Babylonians had taken captive the people of Israel. In what year? Oh, 
Oh, this is painful. 586 BC. All right. The, the Assyrians, some of you may wonder why this is such a painful experience, but it's what we've been studying in our evening services. And uh, 722 BC, the Assyrians had taken the northern tribes, and in 586 BC, and that date becomes very important. The southern tribes were taken captive, 586 B.C., by the Babylonians. Now they're returning to the land. They're in there for 16 years. They're becoming discouraged, and they were discouraged for a variety of reasons. One of the reasons was that they had run into a great deal of opposition. We had talked about that last week, and I actually misrepresented something last week, and I want to clarify this. I said the, the opposition came at the hands of the king... Artaxerxes, and that was not accurate. That came later with the rebuilding of the walls, and the record that we have of that in the book of Ezra, if you've been reading Ezra along with our study of the the prophet Haggai, you'll see that there is an interjection that is chronologically out of order in Ezra, and I presented it as if it was in order, and I want to correct that. It nevertheless does not diminish the fact that the Israelites were being resisted by the Samaritans who were kind of half-breeds because they had been a a group of people whose nationalities were mixed between Israel and other nations that the Assyrians had conquered. They now wanted to become involved in the work with the Israelites, and the Israelites said no. You cannot have a part of this. You do not believe what we believe. You are not representative of what God has called us to be as a people. And so the Samaritans began a great deal of resistance, even to the place where the Israelites were afraid for their lives. There was a, a great deal of threat that was involved with this. And so this, this difficulty that they were facing began to discourage them. And it was not only the opposition that they faced, but they had also encountered a great deal of disappointment. I think that they had anticipated as as leaving uh, the land where they had been held captive that this expectation of theirs was that they were going to be coming into a land that was just going to be fabulous. It, it's almost like um, people who make their way to the United States today. It, it's very you all know that it's very desirable to live in the United States. And even people who, to a large extent, hate Americans, and and I've seen this with my own eyes, they hate Americans, but if you were to offer them a green card to come to America, they would grab it. They would love it. Because this is looked at as the land of opportunity and the great American dream. But then sometimes when people emigrate to this country, they find out it's not as easy and as lucrative and as comfortable as they had anticipated it to be. And some find it very, very difficult to make a living. And and so we recognize that even today we see a little bit of what these Israelites had gone through. They wind up in the land and things are not easy. They have these threats surrounding them. They find that it's not a land flowing with milk and honey anymore because a lot of the land had been overgrown. And there were dangers that were in in the land. And so they were disappointed in that regard. And then, in addition to that, there there was uh, not only the resistance that they experienced and the disappointment, but there were other issues that began to enter into their thinking. Um, They were less than happy with the circumstances of their uh, 
financial situation. They had fallen short of what they anticipated the Lord would give them. And they began to demonstrate an attitude of ingratitude. And they were not thankful for what they had because it was less than what they had wanted. And as they're facing this situation, instead of thanking the Lord for the opportunities that he had given them, they began to to grumble and move away from doing the work that he had called them to do. And we, we see each of these things unfolding before us right here in this first chapter. What we find when we get down to the second verse, and we read this last week, the prophet Haggai, who was just a common man, he was a farmer, he, he was um, a man that, uh, he grew figs, and he, he herded sheep and cattle, and he was just a man upon whom the hand of God had come, and he goes and he gives this prophecy, and in verse 2 it says, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says, The time has not come the time that the Lord's house should be built. And so what what they're saying is this. Well, yeah, we, we know that we should be doing this for God. We know that this is what He wants because He wants to manifest His presence here in the land of Israel, surrounded by people that He has set apart for Himself. But it's just not time yet. We'll get to it. We'll, we'll get around to it. Don't worry about that. It's going to happen. It's just not yet. And it hasn't been not yet for 16 years. And so the prophet begins to chasten them for it. And he chastises them. And then he goes on in verses 3 and 4 to say, Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Their focus had shifted from the purpose for which they had come to the land of Israel It had shifted from accomplishing what God had sent them to accomplish to themselves. And they began to look at their own desires and they began to indulge themselves in lifestyles that were designed to satisfy their own comforts. And um, God's work was neglected. When we looked at that, we understood that it is possible for a people to lose the intensity of desire to serve the Lord that they ought to have if they genuinely know Him and if they are genuinely His people. It is very possible to become spiritually indifferent in the things that God has called His people to perform. And when I read the book of Haggai, I read this as a warning. It was the reality for the Israelites, but it was also written, I believe, to be a warning to us to remind us that we too have been called to carry out a work for God's pleasure, a work that accomplishes His will. And what do we find in that process? If we desire to live for the glory of Christ, there is going to be opposition. You remember what the Lord said? Those who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. We're going to go through hard times. There are going to be people who resist what we have to offer, which is a message of life and a message of hope. In addition to that, not only do we find opposition, but there are times, quite frankly, as God's people, we're we're disappointed. Have you ever been disappointed as a follower of Christ? 
let me ask you, have you ever prayed for something that you really believe would be a good thing and the right thing, and the Lord has said no, and you become disappointed? I've heard people make statements like this. I've tried the Lord. Well, they won't say the Lord. They will say, I tried Jesus. And he didn't come through. And generally what they mean by that is, I wanted something from him that he had had no intent of giving me, and he never gave me what I wanted. And the selfishness of the gaze becomes a disappointment when that selfishness is not satisfied. And you know, the sad part is that believers can be that way too. When we begin to pray and ask God for something and he doesn't deliver, we become very disappointed instead of realizing that sometimes the blessings come through tears. And sometimes the blessings come through trials. What, what's God's intent for us in this life? Have you ever thought about that? It's to have more. It's to experience the American dream. It's to be healthy. It's to be wealthy. And if you're not, your faith is failing. You've blown it. No, that is a lie and that is not true. And that kind of belief leads people to sense of disappointment. What we have to understand is that God's intent in this life is for us to be conformed to the image of Christ. We are to be gradually becoming, the word we use is sanctified, becoming the image of who Christ is. To show through us His beauty, His love, all of the elements of the fruit of the Spirit. And so, if it doesn't go our way, there are people who will become very disappointed instead of saying something like this. Lord, when the trials come and the hardships come, what are you teaching me? What is it you want me to learn? Listen, nothing happens to you by mistake when you are one of God's children. It's by plan. And the disappointments and the trials are designed to chip away at the rough edges of our lives and make us more of that gem that the Lord wants us to be in the image of Christ. As a result of the disappointments, we don't often express our gratitude. You know, the Lord says that we are to give thanks for everything. Be thankful for everything. You mean be thankful for the disappointments? Yes. Be thankful for the trials? Yes. Why? Because we like pain? No but because we know through the pain and through the disappointment and through the trials, God is doing a work within us that is designed to make us more like Christ. You want to you want to put yourself to a test to see if you are growing? Are you more like Christ today than you were last year at this time? I hope the answer to that is yes sad part is there are sometimes when people have been red hot for the Lord and as time goes on they cool off and they become less and less like the Savior. That's what happened in that church in Revelation when the Lord said, you've left your first love. There was a time you loved the Savior more than the way you love Him now. 
And that is a danger that we can face even today. We, we lose a sense of gratitude. And then, I think there are those in the Christian community that would say this, well, I'm going to serve the Lord, it's just not the right time yet. But I'm going to get around to it. I'm going to get involved one day. I'm going to be part of what God intends for me to be one day. And that day hasn't come for the last 16 years. And then the question is, when's it ever going to come? You know what the Lord intended for the people of Israel at this point? That they get to work now. Not tomorrow. Not next week. Not next month. Now. Now I can tell you are all excited beyond measure right now to engage in that. And so I'm just going to suggest to you, maybe you want to help out in the nursery. Am I taking advantage of this opportunity? I'm just throwing in a little bit of a commercial at this point. But seriously, the Lord has given gifts to every one of His children, spiritual gifts, and He intends for you to use them, not to hide them somewhere, not to, not to say, one day I will do these things and I will become involved. And so we, we don't want to become involved in procrastination. And then, and this is a tough one, are we desiring our own comfort more than our faithfulness and service to Christ? Um, I fear that there is a general move today in the Christian community, not toward living holy lives, but living lives that are self-fulfilled. What what do I have to do to make my life better? What do I have to do to make my existence more comfortable? And instead of saying, Lord, what is it that you want me to do, even if it means self-sacrifice and if it means giving up my comfort, my ease, that's what I want to do, what you want me to do. And I believe that that's part of the struggle today among many in Christian circles. And I look at this and I say, you know what? I believe the Lord is sending a warning to us. And he's saying, have you examined yourself to see if you're losing your spiritual desires? Are you, are you moving backwards in your walk with the Lord? If you are, then this message is for you. And we listen and we say, the Lord is not pleased. Well, then what's the consequences? And that takes us to the next point. Not only is there a cause for this spiritual indifference, but there's a curse that comes along with it too. And we begin reading about that curse here in verse 5 as it goes on down through uh, verse 7. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much. And bring in little. You eat, but do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns wages to be put into a bag with holes. Drop down to verse 9. You looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts? 
because of my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. What is happening to the, to the Israelites in their circumstances of ignoring what God has called them to do? The first thing that they're experiencing is a leanness. They, they have done everything that they feel they should do to make life worthwhile. They have sown, but when it's time to reap the harvest, the harvest isn't any good. And when it's time to bring about the, the grain and to, to use the grain to make the food that will satisfy them as they winnow the grain and they throw it up in the air to, to have the chaff blow away, what falls to the ground, which should be good enriched grain, is, is meager. And it doesn't provide what they need. And so they eat, but they're never satisfied. And what they're experiencing is not just this leanness, but they're experiencing a, a total lack of fulfillment. Because here they are, they want to be warm, but they're not warm. They want to be full, but they're not full. They want to have their thirst satisfied, but they drink and their thirst is not satisfied. And if they try to accumulate anything for themselves, it's as if they had taken the riches that God had given them, put it in their pocket or put it in a bag that has holes, and as they're walking along, it's dropping out. And when they get to the place where they want to use what they believe they've accumulated, they reach in and there's nothing there. And the people wonder, why are things going so badly? Why is it such a struggle? Why is it so hard? And the Lord says, because you have not put first things first. You've allowed yourselves to become involved in making things that are part of your life the priorities Instead of allowing me to be the one who satisfies them. Do you remember what we read in Matthew chapter 6 verse 33? When Pastor Steve was reading, he talks to us about the Lord understanding our needs and all that we require. And then he comes to the 33rd verse of Matthew 6 and he says, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Then all these things shall be added unto you. You see, these people had gotten everything mixed up. They thought that the way to fulfillment was to try to satisfy their own desires. They thought that the way that they could enjoy the fatness of the land would be to pour their energies into the things that would satisfy them from their perspective. I want this, I want this, I want, I want food. I want to be, have my thirst quenched. I want to be warm. And so I'm going to pursue these things. When God said, wait a minute, that's not what I called you to do. What I called you to do was to accomplish the building of my house so my presence can come back and be manifest right here. And by the way, we don't want to confuse the way God manifested his presence to the Israelites with the way he does today. You know how he does it today? He still dwells within his temple. You know where the temple is? Right here. Right here. And he wants to manifest himself in us. And by the way, let's not forget this. Right here. 
when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he indicated by using pronouns that in the two different occasions, one was singular, the other was plural. And in our English, it always comes out, you. Don't you know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? That you are the temple of God? Well, in one case, it's singular. I am the temple of the Holy Spirit. I'm a temple that echoes. (laughs) And you are the temple of God. Do you realize that when we meet together, there is a special manifestation of God's presence in this gathering and in gatherings all over the face of the globe where the name of Jesus Christ is lifted up. This is God's temple. And he says, I want you, I want you to build that temple. I want you to put up the structure where my presence will be known, where my people will come and they will worship me and they will glorify me and they will give their lives in service for me. And he says to us, I want my temple to be built on a solid foundation, on the Word of God, both the living and the written built upon that which the apostles delivered to us through that which is declared in our scriptures. And we build this temple, and we build this temple so that the Lord can be honored and glorified. And these Israelites didn't understand that. They they looked at this as if this is really no big deal. You know, I think there are people who around our area Don't think that coming together in a gathering of the church is a big deal. I think they they believe it's, hey, I can worship God wherever I want. And we've talked about this before. I'm not so sure that they do. I think that's just an excuse. But beyond that, the Lord has given us a very stern warning. Forsake not the gathering together of yourselves as the manner of some is. And he says how important it is that we meet together, not just out of habit, but out of desire. A desire to lift our voices in worship and praise, to worship him through our interaction with the way we build each other up, to worship him by the way we support his work, to worship him through the use and the ministry of the spiritual gifts that he's given to us, And you know, there are people today who wonder, why am I not satisfied? Why am I experiencing such leanness in my life? I have everything that I could want. I have got a beautiful home. I have a lovely automobile. I have, uh, not in this order, but I have a wonderful mate. I have great children. I have money in the bank. I'm in good health. I get to participate in recreational activities that that just are so much fun. But something's missing. I'm just not fulfilled. And we look around and we say to ourselves, I don't sense the hand of God's blessing on my life. I come before him, and I really don't feel like we're communicating. I go through all the motions. I do everything just the way I'm supposed to, but I'm not really building 
the temple. And so I've lost out on fulfillment. And there is leanness in my soul. And I don't know why. And the answer comes back. Build my house first. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Then all these things will be added unto you. Do you know one of the the paradoxes of being a follower of Jesus Christ is that the things that we believe are going to bring us satisfaction and fulfillment and abiding joy are the things that we often seek after and they bring none of it. But when we choose to say to the Lord, you are first in my life. It is your glory that I desire to live for. And I want to build however it is you want me to build. And in the process of giving yourself to the Lord's work, all these fulfillments come into your life. And I'm not talking about material wealth. I'm talking about a deep sense of satisfaction a deep sense of fulfillment, a sense of walking in fellowship with our Creator, a sense of knowing that His hand is upon us, and though one day we will go to be with Him and see Him, right now He's using us in this sin-cursed earth to help reach people for Christ, to help build up the body of Christ, and to serve Him and seek His kingdom first. That's when you feel like, oh, what a good day. What a wonderful day. Ah, you might come home from Disney and say, oh, that was a good day. And then you wake up tomorrow. And tomorrow, the credit card bill comes. And you say, what a lousy day. I'm just joking. But you, you know what I'm talking about. Those things don't satisfy. Only Christ satisfies. And so, there's a curse that comes along with this indifference But thankfully, the Lord doesn't allow His people, the Israelites, to remain under the shadow of that curse. Instead, He tells them what the solution will be. And as we return to the Scriptures here in this first chapter, I want you to look with me, if you will, at verse 7. The Lord calls the Israelites to a a, a place of... Well, you know what? I'm even going to go back further. Go back to verse 5. I'm going to reread this without going into the, the curse elements. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. To emphasize this, where he is calling us to examine ourselves and to look within and say, where am I in this purpose that God has for me? He says it again in verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You know what he's talking about? He's saying, I want you to look at where you are spiritually right now and take to heart the reality of what you find. Would it be appropriate to say, folks, let's take the next two minutes and look within and ask yourself this question. First of all, am I in a family relationship with my Creator by being born again? You're you're the, the child of your biological mother and father. 
Some of you may not even know who that is. Some of you may know who it is and really be disappointed. Some of you may know your parents and say, I am extremely thankful for the parents that God gave me. It could be any situation at all. But at that level, you are nothing more than a human being who has value before God, but is separated from him by virtue of sin. And so what he calls us to do is to be born into his family. It's what Jesus said to Nicodemus. Unless a man be born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And so the question initially is this. Have you been born again? It's not turning over a new leaf. It's receiving a whole new life. When you trust Jesus Christ, who died for your sins, was buried, and rose again from the dead, you accept him, and the Bible says, he gives to them eternal life, which is a life that you don't have right now. You say, wait a minute, I thought the Bible taught that everybody's going to live forever, either in heaven or in hell. That's true. You already have an eternal existence. But the eternal life, the quality of life that God wants to give, is received only through the gift that He extends to those who believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior. I give to them eternal life, a quality of life that begins now and extends through all eternity in a heavenly home. By the way, that's where it's all going to be okay. No more trials, no more tears, no more dying, no more sickness, no more separation. That's where we will be. But the quality of that life becomes ours right now. A new birth. I am born into God's family. I become a child of God. That's where it all begins. But you may say, you know, I made that decision years ago. And I trusted Christ as Savior. And I've been experiencing leanness and lack of fulfillment. Then the question is, would you be willing to do what the Lord called the Israelites to do? Would you look within yourself and say, God, show me where I have fallen short of your desires for my life. What is it that I should do to put you first, to seek your kingdom first, and then trust you to supply all the other needs and to fulfill my life? That's exactly what Haggai said to these people. He said, take a look inside. Nobody else should judge anybody sitting near them. And guess what? The pastor shouldn't either. And the pastor's not going to. Because I don't know what's going on in your life. But what I do know is this. You know. You know what's going on. Is it what God wants? Would you be willing to check? Look to yourself. And do it with this intent. Lord, whatever you show me, I'm going to deal with it the way you say I should. What do you think? Let's pray. Father, in the quietness of these moments. 
We ask for an honest attitude from each of the people gathered here today. An attitude that is willing to say, Lord, I need to look at myself and to see if I am being the person you want me to be. Father, these Israelites came back into the land and they weren't what you wanted. But very graciously, you sent your prophet to tell them that and to challenge their hearts and to be willing to examine themselves and then to be willing to do what it is you call them to do. Let that be our desire. Father, in these moments, cause each person here to look within. And Father, as we examine whether or not we are where we should be, that we are doing what we should do, that we are being what we should be, perhaps we find ourselves falling short. And by your grace, I pray that you would help us to obey you. Father, we only have one short life on this planet to do that. Let it begin today. Amen. You go down to verse 12, and it says, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. What is it that God wants from his people? Obedience. We obey. That is really hard to do because our natural inclination is to resist obedience. Why? Because there is a desire to satisfy ourselves and in the process of doing that we find out that we don't satisfy ourselves and when people say, you know what, I've finally given myself over to the Lord, I've never been so fulfilled, I've never been so happy as I am right now. That's because it's the truth. They obeyed what the Lord had to say. And they did it not flippantly, but they understood who it was they were dealing with. They are not dealing with a priest. They are not dealing with a pastor. They are dealing with the God of all creation. And so Haggai goes on and he says to them this, at the latter part of that verse, it says, And the words of Haggai the prophet, in verse 12, As the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the presence of the Lord. There was an awe. There was a reverence. And may I add this, a tough definition to remember about fearing God. Try to remember this if you can. I'm afraid. You say, wait a minute. Didn't God say perfect love casts out fear? Yes, he did. Didn't God say that we are not to be fearful and anxious people? Yes. But there is an appropriate fear that God intends for his people to have, and he identifies that by saying, don't be afraid of the people who can take your life, but be afraid of the one who can take your life and cast your soul into hell. He is saying, 
You better be afraid of me. I am a holy God. I am an all-powerful God. Nothing you think escapes me. Nothing you say goes without my notice. You say, how in the world can God know about everything that is going on all over the face of the globe? How can he know what I am thinking right now? I can tell you how I know he does it. This is no great revelation. But I really believe, you can disagree, but I really believe that the purpose for the greatness of creation, which is so far beyond our ability to comprehend, is the way God said to little pea brains on planet Earth, I can do this all. Don't you think for a moment that you're getting away with anything. He knows exactly what you're thinking right now. He knows if you're, if you're rebelling. He knows if you are submitting. He knows whether you intend to be disobedient. And he knows whether you intend to obey. The beauty of this is the people looked at themselves, they obeyed, and they feared God. And guess what they did? They went to work. And God said, yes! God didn't say it that way. But the idea is, yes! This is what I wanted you to do. And when they started to work, do you know how the Lord responded? There was the, the curse of this spiritual indifference, but the cure has come. And once the cure was in place... Look at what the Lord goes on to tell us. He says in verse 13, Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to the people, saying, I am with you, says the Lord. You might say, you know what, what if I do make this decision to give my life completely to Christ and to live for His honor and glory? He says back to you, I am with you. Do you know that everything else stems from that? What harm can come my way if God is with me? Only that which he permits, and then it will be the right kind of harm. I can't tell you, you won't be harmed. I would love to say that today, no follower of Jesus Christ is going to sacrifice his life because of his faith in Christ. But I can't tell you that because I know this. There are people dying today because they trusted Christ as their Savior, and they refused to recant that belief and embrace a false God, and they will die because of it. But I do know this. God is going to give them the grace to go through that. You say, could you die for the Lord? Not right now. Not right now. I'm just being honest with you. You know, I'm supposed to say, oh yes, I'd be willing to die for the Lord. Right now, I have a hard time saying I'd be willing to die for the Lord. But here's what I know. If the time had come for me to die for the Lord, he promises to give me grace to be able to do that. So then I will be able to. And so when I look at this, I, I know this. He says, I am with you. You give yourself to me. I am with you every step of the way. He goes on to say this, not only does he promise his presence, but in verse 14, so the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. 
And they came and they worked. Isn't that great? The Lord energized them. He stirred their spirits. He caused them to work. And then, he had already told them how that would work out. Go back to verse 8. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I might take pleasure in it and be glorified. You know what? That brings us right to the very end of why we are here. (sighs) I honestly have a hard time remembering this. I really think that there are times that the reason for my being here is so I can enjoy myself. Just being honest. Do you, do you all think I have fun? Or, or do you see me as some mad, yelling, hellfire and brimstone? See always the negative, nasty, I know I can come across that way. No, I know that. Why are you agreeing with me? It's true. (laughs) Oh, thank you. (laughs) That makes it all right. (laughs) The truth is, I, I love life. I really enjoy life. But what I enjoy most about it is doing the will of God and going to bed at night saying, Lord, this was your day. Are you pleased? Uh, Bob, you you prayed for the the pastors that our lives would please the Lord. That we would do what we're supposed to do. I appreciate that and I thank you. I hope you all pray that for us. There are days that I do that. Those are good days. And there are days I don't. And those are lousy days. But I'll tell you what. I still enjoy life. I have a lot of fun. But that's not my purpose. My purpose is to please him so that he will be glorified. And all the rest doesn't matter. Let's stand. Father, thank you for this simple plain, unassuming man Haggai, a servant who faithfully delivered your message and then watched your spirit work to bring about a great spiritual awakening among the Israelites. I pray, Father, that if you should choose, you would bring about a great spiritual awakening in my heart and in the hearts of our people here today so that you would be pleased and you would be glorified. It's in our Savior's name I ask this. Amen.